Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This, to me, is like the really fascinating material. I don't know what the answer is, but we're looking for patterns. I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The story slowly Still, a lot of people don't know that this technology actually exists. The possibilities here are pretty mind Well, we're back on Conspiracy Normal, and the musical chairs continue. It's me this week. It's you this week, and we don't have Serfiel. Oh, because he is working, and uh, he's starting his new job. And been in training for the last like two, three weeks. We need to pay him more. Yeah, yeah. Well, you never know. Something like that could happen at some point. But uh, we're back at Studio A, and uh, Rob's got his granny blanket on. I do. (laughs) (laughs) My my lap blanket. This has been uh, momentous, man, because uh, you started your new job. I did. Everything's changing around us, brother. Well, that's life, you know. Yeah. Change is good. Constant dynamic change. Yeah, I'm a carpenter now. You are. Yep. You are. Not only are you the pod Christ, but you are the you are now a carpenter. You're living up to it, brother. <laughs> and speaking of which, guys, we have a guest that I'm excited about, an actual return guest um, that uh, is a good friend of the show, and that's Zach Hunt. And we're going to talk to him about his book, Unraptured. Zach, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, man. It's great to have you. Hey, it's great to be back, man. I appreciate you guys having me. Yeah, you know, it's like a, it's been a couple of years since we had you had you on. That's crazy. Uh, I really can't believe it's been that long. Yeah. I mean, time flies, man. Um, you know, at the time, I think you had just started this book, and I think you were still pretty much doing the uh, the blog at that time. Are you still active on the blog? Um. Yes. And no. I um. You know, writing the book has consumed most of my, um, you know, writing time uh, and energy. Uh, so I, I still post things occasionally, um, and I my plan is to get back into you know a rhythm or routine of that as soon as like the book launch and stuff settles down. Um, you know, there there definitely is stuff on my blog that's recent. Most of it obviously has to do with the book launch. Um, I'm kind of segued a little bit into doing some video blogging. Um, I've got another one coming out later this week. And so I'm putting that on my blog and then I do this, um, American Jesus madness tournament every year. And, uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I actually, I'm putting up, uh, the announcement about that tomorrow and got some fun things that we do this year. I've got prizes going to do what I'm calling a resurrection bracket. So 
you know, when people's brackets inevitably bust after the first or second round, um, I'm going to let people re-enter. You know, hopefully keep the keep the interest and excitement going for a couple extra days. But uh, so the blog's definitely still active. It's over at Pathios now um, instead of at ZachHunt.net. It's over at Pathios, and um, you know they've been good good to me. And uh, like I said, as soon as this stuff slows down, I hope to kind of get back to regularly ranting um, on the internet. Yeah, yeah. And I was telling you today that uh, I finished the book. I'm I'm pretty impressed with it. Um, it mirrors quite a few things in my own life. Um, and also, you know, I was telling you a little bit about Dr. Future I mean, you guys seem yep. to be pretty much in the same ballpark in some of this stuff. Um, except he still considers himself a dispensationalist and hmm. I'm, I don't know. I don't know where I am in that whole dispensational and the whole, like where the whole spectrum of Christian eschatological beliefs. <laughs> I'm pretty, uh, I, I don't know. I'm getting to the point where I'm getting pretty agnostic about it. As funny mm-hmm. as that sound, as that term sounds. No, I get it. But I, uh, really enjoyed this book and it's really what it is to kind of looking at the rapture and like what you used to believe in the rapture and how you kind of became not to believe in it anymore and some of your other thoughts about that whole process. Um, for people that may have not have heard you, because it has been a while, uh, what is your, just kind of briefly, what is your religious background um, and how you came to look into this whole rapture phenomenon? How'd this start for you? Sure. So I grew up um, in the Church of Nazarene. It's a... Um, um, well, it's a fairly conservative evangelical denomination, though it's uh, pretty eclectic, you know, church to church, um, depending on you know, like what part of the country, or like a lot of denominations are. Um, I didn't grow up in a family that was particularly interested in all that kind of stuff, and, and I didn't really pay much attention to, like, in times theology any more than, you know, a normal, regular church person was uh, or would. I think it was probably middle school, high school, um, when I really started getting into it. Um, I started watching this guy, Jack Van Emby, I think my grandmother, um, <laughs> even though I said my family wasn't that into it, she was just watching him as a preacher. Um, but Jack Van Empey, uh, one of those TV evangelists, he had this kind of faux news show and I think he still, still has it. And he would, his wife, Rexello would present the, uh, the headlines of the day, you know, whatever news headlines that they thought were, uh, you know, relevant to end times prophecy. And then he would dissect them and he would have this long list of proof texts that, he would rattle off by memory and, um, I got sucked into it. I, you know, I was the nerdy Sunday school kid who, you know, had all the answers and, and thought that the answers were the key to my salvation. And so, um, this like the end time stuff for me was almost like a higher knowledge, kind of like, um, I think I might use the example of the book, but you know, it's like the masonry, for example. So, like, you know, masonry is this insider's club, but then there's like deeper, le- deeper levels of that. Um, you know, you don't just get in; you can like race rise to the ranks. And there's like subgroups, like the Shriners and things like that. And um, I think you know, in the Church of Nazarene, we believe in the doctrine of sanctification or entire sanctification, holiness. This idea that like God causes or calls us to this life free from sin. And you know, so I had this framework in my head growing up. Um, from the beginning that like, you know, there's Christianity and then there's this deeper, you know, truer form of Christianity, if you will. 
And, you know, I think in my failed pursuit of perfection, that rapture in times theology kind of filled that void um, because it was just about knowing all these right answers. And so, you know, I always was, you know, very arrogant and, and a know-it-all in high school and middle school and probably in my thirties now too. But, um, you know, I, I wanted all the answers. And so like that need for, to know everything coupled with this idea that, you know, uh, that knowledge was the key to salvation. Cause all I had to do was believe, right. And like faith is what guarantees your salvation. You know, some, uh, in time theology was that not panacea, but it, it it was that silver bullet, so to speak, that kind of checked off all the boxes and ensured my salvation and made me feel like I you know, was smarter than everybody else in the room because I knew the secrets of the end times. It's kind of felt like you knew this deeper truth that underlay Christianity, underlay it's, some of the sim- simplistic aspects of Christianity. Like, no, there must be more. You have to go deeper. That's very similar to like um, Gnosticism in the early that's church, exactly, you know, yeah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, Gnosticism was, you know, one of the first heresies of the church and, you know, it, it, it seems kind of like an irrelevant topic, you know, or an issue, but the reality is things like, uh, the end times or, you know, any other sort of niche theology that, that we use to elevate ourselves, you know, over and against other people in the church, you know, it becomes its own form of Gnosticism. And I definitely bought into it hook, line and sinker. Yeah, and also it's interesting you mentioned Freemasonry in that aspect because you could really draw like a um, a line from Gnosticism to Freemasonry if you really wanted to. Sure. But also I think um, another one that does that, that the people feel like they have a deeper meaning is the, uh, the Hebrew Roots Movement. That's mm. another one where people feel like they have the, the, all this insight because they practice all the ho- the high holy days of Judaism or they 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 follow the law of Moses even though Jesus pretty much says we don't have to but yeah, I'm not familiar with with them yeah they they are they're they're kind of a big thing now um there's a lot of them around actually here in Nashville too oh interesting so that's that's another one where like that you could draw that comparison but let's yep. talk about this concept of the rapture. And I know, you know, there's probably a lot of people that understand that, but maybe they don't understand dispensationalism and exactly what that is, because that's a rather big word and there's a lot to it. So I want to kind of explore, you know, the concept of the rapture, how that fits in with what dispensationalism is. Sure. So dispensation, we'll start, I guess, at the bottom, work our way up. Uh, okay. Unintended, I guess. <laughs> um, All right. But yeah, so dispensationalism is the idea that history is divided into these various dispensations um, or time periods that if you read the Bible uh, correctly in that context, I guess, um, then you can discover which dispensations we're in. Um, the last, you know, dispensation. Uh, you know, being the, the grand day of them all, you know, when Jesus returns and all the fun stuff happens in Revelation. Um, and so the idea behind most dispensationalism is that, you know, this stage of the church or we're at the end of the age of the church and we're in this sort of in-between period um, between that and then, you know, the coming of the kingdom of God when Jesus returns and makes everything new. Um, the idea is there's seven of these dispensations. Some of it's uh, the proof text for it tends to be in uh, the book of Daniel. Um, but in reality, it's a fairly modern idea, um, that pops up in the 19th century. Um, I think you might see some of it in the 18th, but, um, 
there's not really any biblical justification for it. It's all read into scripture. It, it's certainly not Christian orthodoxy in the sense of it's not something the early church believed. It's not found in any creed or catechism, um, you know, before the last, you know, 150, 200 years. Um, but it lays the groundwork for all of this, the, the end time stuff that, um, you know, we, we see in pop culture. So the left behind movies, the rapture, the tribulation, the antichrist, things like that. Um, it, it lays the groundwork for turning all that into sort of this roadmap or this elaborate, um, uh, secret code to the future. And so dispensationalism gives rise, um, and that may not be fair way to say it, but, but the rapture is, is within the world of dispensationalism. And it's essentially invented by a guy named John Darby, who was a mm-hmm. Scottish preacher um, in the mid-19th century. He came over to the United States right after the Civil War and, and preached all around. And he's the first one that, that at least popular, popularizes a two-stage return of Jesus. Um, before Darby shows up on the scene, the church universally, unequivocally, confessionally um, believes that Jesus will return but only return once. And so Jesus returns. And when he does, that's, that's that, that's the end of history, so to speak. You know, that's when all things are being made new and all the promises of revelation come true. Darby possibly borrowing from, um, a girl who made us, um, reportedly made a similar prophecy in Scotland says that, no, there's going to be this, this moment, um, where Jesus comes back and kind of stops halfway and grabs the church, um, in the clouds and takes them away before this time of trial and tribulation, um, where there are all these plagues and, and, uh, horrible things will take place in the earth and the antichrist will rise and all the stuff you see in the Kirk Cameron movies. Um, now there's, you know, some <laughs> debate, you know, in dispensational circles about when the rapture will happen. Does it happen before this time of tri- this tribulation in the middle of it afterwards? Um, but the, but the, but the important thing to know is there's a difference between the rapture and the second coming. Um, like I said, the rapture is this idea that the church goes up to heaven and escapes this time of tribulation that, that is supposed to occur according to uh, dispensationalism. The second coming is the ancient confession of the church that Jesus is going to return. Um, so you can believe in the rapture and the second coming, but you don't have to believe in the second coming. Uh, I'm sorry. You don't have to believe in the rapture to believe in the second coming. Okay. That makes sense. I know that, it's it's that, really cool. that does that does make sense because you've got, uh, as you said there, you got different ideas. I mean, you have um, the, uh, the you also have something like the pre wrath, the the or like the uh, the early tribulation, the middle, the last um, uh, when the when the rapture occurs somewhere on oh, this on this timeline, and there's also like the pre wrath position where. Uh, apparently we'll go through some Christians will go through some of the tribulation, but then they'll be taken out in the middle of it before God puts out his wrath. Um, yeah, I've heard, I've heard some of those different um, yeah, that, ideas about it. That's, that's the you know tough thing about talking about it is, yeah. you know, it, it has its own vocabulary. Um, you know, and just talking about the rapture is just skimming the surface because like you said, I mean, there's various interpretations of, you know, when that's actually going to happen and, you know, and why, and then, you know, different proof text and, um, you know, just because, you know, person A and person B might both believe in the rapture and both be ardent dispensationalism doesn't mean they agree on anything else. You know, um, it's, it's a very, uh, diverse group of folks. Let's put it that way. Well, so this rapture idea comes, you said it comes from this vision of this girl and John Darby, that was the Plymouth brethren, correct? Yeah. So he, he, yeah. It, Darby's, like I said, it's 
you know, I have not seen the documentation that the, that this girl actually existed. I, yeah. It was in a book that, that I've read, or another researcher, a writer has done. Um, but it's definitely Darby who um, popularizes and uh, this idea because he goes and preaches all over the UK and then all over the United States, um, and he's the one that, for all intents and purposes, invents the rapture. So. Where do they pull this from? Are there, are there verses in the Bible that they pulled this idea from? Sure. So there's going to be a few different texts. Um, you know, you're going to get uh, Matthew 24, for example, 25, or what's called the little apocalypse of Matthew. And this is where you see the, the imagery of being left behind. So, you know, two people, it's like the Larry Norman song, you know, two people walking down the road, one is gone, you know, uh, the other's left behind. Or there's two people working at the mill and one's taken, the other's left behind. Then there's the passage in the Thessalonians, the famous, you know, uh, being taken up in the twinkling of an eye kind of thing. Uh, and then, you know, Revelation 4 is when uh, John has his vision um, and is told to come up here. And that is another proof text that that's that's used to, to prove the rapture. The, the basic idea is that, you know, those passages are are predicting a literal history um, or a literal future, rather. Um, and so it's the task of the dispensationalists, or, you know, in their minds, the task of the Christian to discern the real meaning of those passages as they pertain to this map that they've decided exists. But um, but none of those passages actually have anything to do with the rapture. The the first two, the little apocalypse um, and the, the Thessalonians passage that Paul is talking about, um, both are about the second coming. Um, when you read them in context, you know, Paul very much was convinced that Jesus was coming back any day, but not in the sense that the, the church was going to be taken away. He was convinced that Jesus was coming back to fulfill his promise because that's what, you know, Jesus has said. Um, and then in Revelation, uh, you know, what we're witnessing is an apocalyptic vision, uh, and it's the, the, the command to come up here is only directed towards uh, John, and it's a very, um, cliche is not the right figure, uh, a regular trope in apocalyptic literature, meaning that the idea that, that earthly, a, a human being is told to come up to the heavens is just a, is just a typical aspect of apocalyptic literature. Um, but what happens is yeah. that, that come up here, you know, gets translated from the Greek into Latin, and you end up with this word rapio that ends up being, you know, turned into the English rapture. Um, but, you know, it's not anywhere actually in the Bible. But then if you, but even still, the, the idea that's left behind, you know, isn't um, – it, it, even if it, even if we look at that and strip away all the context that makes it clear that this is about the the return of Jesus, that passage alone isn't even clear in itself whether or not being left behind is a good thing or a bad thing. Um, you know, for example, if you were caught in a flood um, and you were taken away by the flood waters, it would be a good thing to be left behind. Um, you know, and flood imagery like that is certainly prevalent in scripture. But but yeah, it's 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 a What's happening in dispensationalism, and you know this is true for a lot of aspects of Christianity or any religion for that matter. Um, but there's a predetermined conclusion, which is this dispensationalist map to the future that this is what's going to happen, and so verses are taken out of context, and the round peg of the verse is forced into the square hole. And if you start with a conclusion. And then you go and find the evidence in the Bible, it all makes sense. But if you start in the Bible, um, it makes it a lot harder to reach the conclusions of dispensationalism. Yeah, I I know from my – I want to get to your personal kind of losing your faith in the whole rapture concept in a little bit. But I, for me, 
It's funny that you, in the book that you mentioned Jack Van Impey, because I remember watching him in the 90s. And at the time, I, I was not a Christian. I was pretty far from it. And uh, But I remember just laughing at Jack Van Impey, and I'd probably still laugh today, but uh, for, for different reasons. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, 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 when I became a Christian, you know, like at that time, like the left behind books were really big. This was like yeah. early 2000s. And so I bought all this stuff pretty much lock, stock, and barrel about the rapture and what the rapture Absolutely. was and all that. And then I can remember seeing some random thing on YouTube about this guy talking about that that's not actually in the Bible. And I'm sitting there just thinking to myself, not having really read the Bible, of like, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, I can't believe it. And I still, in some ways, in my mind, um, almost still take it for granted that the rapture is a real thing. I'm just not huge on the whole pre-tribulation rapture aspect of where it's almost like burn, baby, burn, where we're going to be, the Christians are going to be taken out of here and we're just going to watch everybody suffer, you know? And yep. uh, so the, it's it's still kind of in my mind because it's ingrained that way. Sure. You know, from the time that I was a new Christian onward, that this is something that that is that is very real, and now this book has kind of challenged me to even look at dispensationalism as not being a as not being there either. And yeah. uh, I have an uncle that's actually uh, he's actually a Baptist and uh, very intelligent man knows a lot about the faith, and he actually looked at me and said, "Well, dispensationalism," he called it a heresy. Mm. And I was like, that's pretty strong. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, when you sort of, uh, dip your toes in that water, so to speak, like it's, uh, strong opinions are formed fast. Let's put it that yeah. Way. yeah. So for you, what happened that made you start saying, well, uh, uh, this is not how it actually is. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it wasn't, um, you know, a light bulb moment, so to speak, but there was a kind of a turning point. And, you know, I talk about in the book, I, I showed up at college as a religion major, you know, with my end time charts figured out, you know, thought I had all the secrets to revelation, um, <laughs> un, you know, unearthed and, um, you know, ready to go. And, you know, uh, religion classes were just a shock to the senses. You know, the first class I ever took was like to Jesus at seven thirty in the morning, and you know, instead of like talking about Jack Van Impey and the end times, we're doing redaction criticism and um, textual criticism and, and all these other horrible things that are just mind-numbingly boring. And and I hated it, but I, I had a meeting uh, uh, with my advisor to schedule my spring semester classes, and I took that as an opportunity, you know, to get validation for all of my end times prophecies and. I showed up at his office and, you know, I, I said, before I even sat down, I think I started rattling off, you know, everything that I thought, you know, my predictions for the, the, the timing of the rapture and the idea of the end of the antichrist and, and all that stuff. And I'm, I'm sure I talked for 20 minutes without taking a breath. And, and, you know, this is a guy that, you know, I idolized, um, you know, just by reputation. I, I didn't even really know him. Uh, but, you know, I'm expecting him to, uh, you know, pat me on the back and maybe give me a dozen roses and, you know, throw a party for me because he's invited me to be part of the faculty because I'm clearly, you know, so, uh, uh <laughs> theologically astute anyway, but he looks at me and says, you know, I've got respect, you know, I have a lot of respect for these guys. They're like Jack Van Impey. They're clearly, 
you know, passionate about scripture and they're smart guys. But they said the problem is that um, they're trying to pinpoint places on a map that simply doesn't exist. He said that they're right. We are living in the end times, but we have been ever since Jesus walked out of the tomb. And, uh, you know, I um, walked out of that meeting quite upset, uh, uh, you know, and angry and in denial for a while. Um, you know, and then I finally got to a point where, you know, I decided, okay, I'm going to try to figure out what he meant by that and why he believes the way he did. Not really as, as an open-minded exercise as much just to kind of prove him wrong. And, um, you know, it took a lot of work. I mean, to, to kind of understand what he talked about, I'm sorry, about what, what he really meant. And honestly, it's something I'm still kind of wrestling with today, you know, as I think you can kind of see in the book, but, um, you know, the first things that were kind of, I mean, that was certainly the first pulling of the thread that, you know, began to unravel other things. Um, you know, the next, I think big pull was realizing, um, like what he said about the map that doesn't exist. I mean, when you, can step away objectively from dispensationalism, which took me a long time to do and just look at the scripture by itself without, you know, Jack Van Impey's commentary next to it or John Hagee's maps, you know, you realize that a lot of this dispensationalist stuff, really almost all of it is shoehorned into scripture. Um, this idea of like seven periods of church history is, is nowhere in the Bible. Um, and it's not in Daniel, you know, there's seven, these seven weeks and things like that. Um, but that has nothing to do with, you know, seven periods of history and, and all that kind of stuff. Like I said, the rapture is, is not in there, you know, anywhere. Um, a lot of the ideas, things like, that, okay, like one of the, the things that I thought was super important um, that actually affects, you know, geopolitical issues today is this idea that there needs to be this peace treaty that's signed in Israel in order for blah, blah, blah to happen so that blah, blah, blah happens so that Jesus comes back. And that's nowhere, you know, in Scripture. All these prophetic events, you know, that I thought needed to happen – you know, because of verses, you know, A, B, C, and D, you weren't actually in there. And so, like, that was another thread. But really the thing that, that killed the rapture for me wasn't just the, you know, the lack of scriptural, actual scriptural evidence for it, or the fact, you know, that, that Darby made it up in the 19th century and it did not exist before him. Um, but it was more as I began to look at the scripture as a whole, as, as one big narrative instead of just, you know, a few isolated verses or books here and there. And I began to see that the rapture wasn't just not biblical, it's anti-biblical. Um, because the rapture is all about escapism. The rapture mm -hmm. is about being taken away from trial and tribulation. And that's not at all the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is a story of a people or of a God who walks with his people through trial and tribulation, whether that's Exodus or the Red Sea or the wilderness or exile or persecution, Rome. I mean, the story of the Bible is a story of a God who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not the story of a God who whisks us away. Um, and more importantly, you know, for me, understand and for most Christians, uh, you know, the key to understanding the Bi understanding the Bible is Jesus, um, and the foundation of Jesus's life, death, and, death and resurrection is the incarnation. It's the idea that God came and dwelt among us, that God put in put on um, flesh. I mean, that's the call of Christianity: is to go and do likewise, to enflesh or embody. Um, the faith to bring right. the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven, not escape earth from heaven. Um, and so that was really the, the, as I began to see Christianity as not a, a get out of jail free card or, or, you know, escape the uh, tribulation card, but as a calling to a particular way of life in the here and now that 
definitely was the end of my rapture theology and the beginning of a, a totally different understanding of Christianity than I had before, um, regardless of the rapture. Let me ask you this. A thought that I had uh, while I was listening to you speak about, and it's talking about John Darby and him coming over, that there seems to be almost as if the rapture is preaching to this, to an elect few that are going to get to escape. We're going to get in our escape pods and we're going to go with, with Jesus, right? Yeah. Is there an element of Calvinist theology in that? Um, you mean in the sense of like determinism? Yeah. Our predestination or the elect, the elite. Yeah. I mean, I would say sure. It probably is. Um, but you know, there are definitely plenty of Calvinists that would not affirm like the rapture. Um, you know, so it's, I would say, you know, there's just, it's more of a Venn diagram situation, <laughs> I think. Right. You know, yeah, that's kind of where I'm going with that too. Yeah. Yeah. For the idea of, um, you know, there's some determinism because, Hey, here's the plan, you know, we have to figure it out. Um, but then also, like you said, like the elect, you know, so in Calvinism, you have the elect that are saved. And then, you know, the goal of, you know, the rapture is to be part of the elect. You know, the part where it get it would get messy is when you have, you know, her- heretical Wesleyans like me that were like, oh, we can choose to be part of the elect, you know, where a Calvinist would say, no, no, no. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely some overlap for sure. When you began to search to find out the truth about these matters, um, you came across a couple of ancient church, I don't know if you could call them church fathers, but Origin and St. Augustine. Oh, yeah. No, definitely church, church fathers, for sure. And, and you said that those writings began to kind of affect you and kind of began to give you a different viewpoint of this material. So let's talk about those two guys, um, what they wrote about and what that means in light of becoming unraptured. Sure. So, you know, I, I was familiar with Augustine you know, uh, long before I really got to, to know him, so to speak. Uh, but when, but when I got to, uh, to Yale, uh, for graduate school was the first time that I really dove into reading his words instead of just reading what other people said, he said, um, if that makes sense. And, you know, at that point I had to, you know, abandoned the rapture, uh, you know, a long time before I started doing that. But, you know, I think my faith was still grounded in intellectual assent um, and having the right answers and the sort of perfectionism that was required. Like, you know, I was still, I think, in the mode of the Bible needs to be perfect. I need to be perfect. Everything needs to be perfect. And only in, only when everything is perfect can the perfect God come and live among the perfect people. Um, Augustine and Origen both uh, you know, through my understanding of the Bible and how to read it upside down. And some, for me, at least really good ways. So Origen is actually writes before Augustine. Um, Augustine is one of the most important thinkers in Western history. Um, whether you're a Christian or not, his ideas are highly influential uh, in Western thought. 
but Origen's writing before him and influences a lot of him. Um, Origen's writing in the third century, um, and he actually ends up being declared a heretic several centuries later, unfairly. Um, a lot of Catholic bishops and theologians would say that as well. Um, but he uh, he talks about scripture in uh, oh man on first first principles. I think is is the treatise that he wrote where he talks about scripture and. He says that there's two senses of scripture. There's the literal and the spiritual. And he says there's the literal is, is as it sounds, the literal words on the page. Um, but he says, you know, that's not where the, the deeper truth of scripture lies. And in fact, it can be problematic and it can trip us up. He calls them stumbling blocks in scripture. But he says, you know, that the, the Holy Spirit allows those stumbling blocks uh, to be there to draw us deeper into the word towards the spiritual truth where the um, God wants to you know, where the revelation is or where the truth of God is. Um, so stumbling blocks being things like slaves obey your masters for his right in the Lord and the new Testament or in the old Testament, you know, when the, um, law says, if your child is being unruly, take them outside of the camp and stone them to death. Right. It's like, those are, those are difficult passages to work with. That's, that's pleasant. Yeah. So if you say in the literal sense, you've got some problems, but if you accept that the Holy spirit, um, allows, you know, imperfect people to to participate in the story of god then you say okay well this is you know um there's something deeper here that god's trying to draw and maybe that's the truth is that that you know the the writers of scripture were flawed like we are that they're they're much like us trying to understand who this god is in relation to us but anyway but there's this deeper you know um spiritual truth that god is is trying to draw us to that's beyond just the words on the page and and so that that was kind of my first liberation not first liberation at all that was my first um, that put flesh on my bones of trying to be liberated from fundamentalism because I knew the fundamentalism at that point wasn't right. I knew that reading scripture literally all all the time. Now, certainly there are parts of scripture should be let, be read literally, but not all the Bible. I mean, the Psalms are poetry. We don't read that literally, right? right. Um, but 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 trying to find some way to explain that, you know, was something that I, I still struggle with. And he kind of put those. Um, meat on the bones, but then I'm left with you know the the quick attack that you get you know online or from conservative circles in real life. You know, is well, who are you to you know pick and choose? You know, wh- what should be read literally, and what's the more spiritual truth, or where you know if something is a stumbling block or not. You know, and it's a fear of criticism, but it, it kind of didn't. It, it, it's kind of a putting your head in the sand and and ignoring the reality that there are all kinds of different things that inform our interpretation. You know that that. You know, none of us are kind of doing this blindly, but Augustine steps in with a really good guiding principle for reading the Bible um, that he's just taking from Jesus. And he says, you know, no matter how good your this is me paraphrasing here, but no matter how good your exegesis is, no matter how good your interpretation is, no matter how many proof texts that you have um, for your conclusions, if your conclusion doesn't lead you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, your neighbor as yourself, then you're wrong. Um, and obviously, he's just taking the greatest commandment um, there and and reapplying it. But he's, you know, if Jesus was telling the truth that that's what everything in the law and the prophets, in other words, everything in Scripture hangs on, then why shouldn't that be our interpretive rule for Scripture? Um, and if it is, then it, it radically changes a lot of of our proof texting. Um, because we can't just take a passage and say, oh, well, this group is not welcome or this group are a bunch of sinners because here's a verse, you know, and so we're going to kick them out of church and we're not going to let them be a part of this, that or the other, um, because that's not loving our neighbor. Um, and so it's it really challenged me to reevaluate um, not just fundamental ideas, but also a lot of uh, tertiary conclusions that I made. 
So the idea that the literal versus symbolic, I mean, this is a, this is a big thing. Uh, you know, revelation in and of itself alone seems like it's a mostly symbolic book. Yeah. So, you know, one of the problems and I talk about this in the book is that we've been conditioned and I certainly was to juxtapose myth with truth so that the word myth has become a synonym for not true um, or just false. Sure. And so, Particularly in Christian circles, and especially conservative Christian circles, we're very sensitive about that word myth. And so, it, you know, if we talk about the first two chapters of Genesis being a myth, you know, people freak out, right? You know, and and lose their their mind um, because if it didn't literally happen, then supposedly that you know knocks down a bunch of dominoes, and all of a sudden Jesus didn't exist or or whatever. Um, but but the Bible relies on myth a lot because. Myth has the power to convey truths that um, literal history often does not, because a lot of times literal history is bound by its place and time. And so a lot of the lessons or um, ideas or symbolism are are best conveyed in the moment, so to speak. Right. So when it happens or around the time period it happens, because, um, you know, if you're if you're if we're trying to get meaning and substance out of a story from let's say even 150 or 200 years ago from the civil war or further back to the revolutionary war we have to have historians step in and explain to us you know the the cultural context and the assumptions of the people um you know that that were involved in that particular story but with myth we don't have that so for example the myth of icarus right there was never a a guy who put on wings and and actually flew so close to the sun that they melted and he died but it still conveys truths about hubris and arrogance and pride that's Same not thing. that's not a true story i know i'm sorry oh I, man your, your your icarus christmas my my sincere apologies <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, Santa Claus is another one. You know, I, I actually talked about my blog. I did write about this not too long ago. You yeah. know, the myth of Santa Claus. Santa Claus, you know, I'll pause for spoiler alerts if, if children are listening. But, you know, Santa Claus is a myth, but it's a myth that conve- conveys really important truths, um, you know, about generosity and hospitality and love and, and that kind of stuff um, that transcends space and time, right? So, like, you know, the story of Icarus. Well, the story of the boy who cried wolf were, were written in times radically different from our own, but we don't need all the historical context to understand the truth that is conveying those myths. And that's the beauty of Revelation is that it's relying on that power of myth, um, stories of dragons and plagues that, that you know, we don't need anybody to explain the imagery behind a dragon, right, or a plague. Like, just because you weren't alive in the first century doesn't mean you can't understand what somebody's talking about when they – uh, invoke the imagery of a dragon. And so like, that's the beauty of revelation is it's using myth to tell these deep, important spiritual truths to cultures and times or cultures and places all across time, whether that be the ancient near East where it was written or 21st century America, where we're reading it today. And one thing about a book like revelation is that it seems like there's using those, those myths, archetypes, those type of things that people were going to understand because a lot of it seemed to be code that that you're writing to this particular group of people that knows what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And you know, there, there is certainly that element, you know, to it. Um, You know, there are definitely some, some myths obviously that, that, that do rely on particular cultural 
context and time periods. But, you know, as I argue in the book, I, I think a big part of the reason that a lot of us struggle to understand Revelation isn't so much the bizarre imagery um, as it is, you know, that it, the fact that it's not written to us. And, and I don't mean that in the sense of, you know, we're, we're 21st century people and John was writing in the first century, but, you know, John is writing a book of liberation and justice and hope for the oppressed. And people like me who are middle-class white guys, you know, reading this, trying to decipher the signs of the times don't have those needs in our lives. You know, I mean, that's not to say that, you know, I don't haven't had struggles and pain and suffering and things like that. I have, but like, you know, the book of revelation can speak to the people of, uh, Nicaragua or Honduras or, uh, you know, Rwanda much clearer, um, in a way than it ever will to me. Um, because, you know, the gospel is good news for the poor, not good news for, you know, um, middle-class white guys. And, and I know that's a, a an awkward thing to, to say or to hear and doesn't really jive well with the kind of Christianity that I grew up with, um, or that, you know, is beloved everywhere. But, you know, Jesus, Jesus isn't a big fan of rich people, you know, like he says it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of the needle than it is a rich person to get to heaven. Like, you know, yeah. that, that's like a quaint saying, but like, that's, that's, that's heavy stuff when you consider that relative to the rest of the world, most of the people that live here in the United States are wealthy, you know? And so like most of us would consider ourselves Christians. So, like, what do we do with that? What do we do with the Jesus who says, if you want to follow me, sell everything you have and give to the poor, you know, like when we get to revelation and we see these passages like, Oh, Hey, there's going to be this tree of life. And you're like, Oh, that's a cool image. Well, it is kind of a cool image, but it's a life changing image when you're growing up in the developing world or, you know, here maybe in the rural America or the inner city, and you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. Right. And so like revelation has this book of tremendous, incredible hope for everybody, but especially the people is written to. And, and if we, if we find ourselves in a place where we're, we're self-sufficient where we don't have, you know, we're, you know, we're not faced with, you know, racial injustice or impression or oppression or, you know, our identity is not marginalized or, you know, those sort of big systemic issues. It, it's hard to get, you know, the, the message of revelation. And that was me. And, you know, I, I, in retrospect, I can see why, you know, the, the symbolism and the dispensationalism and all the charts and graphs are so appealing because they helped me make sense of something that, you know, didn't make sense at all. And not because I just didn't understand why it didn't make sense. And I would argue that dispensationalism doesn't either, because if you turn to the, most of the people, um, you know, who are doing these charts and graphs like Jack Van Impey, they look a lot like me. They just, you know, probably in better shape. And in the case of Jack has better hair. <laughs> uh, that's the thing that people I think don't understand about, the early part of Christianity and I'm, you know, I'm talking about pre Constantine Yeah, is this whole concept that Christianity was a religion for the poor. Yeah. That's why so many people got behind it. That's why the cross was such a powerful symbol because they took that symbol of Roman oppression and flipped it around. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you're, you're seeing these people who have no chance in life because of, you know, where they're born, who their parents are. Um, you know, if they're not a Roman citizen, they're already at a massive disadvantage. And if they're not born into the aristocracy, you know, their life's already determined for them. 
and you have this message of of blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor, blessed are they when you know those who are persecuted. You know, it's it's a message of radical liberation and justice and hope that those of us who grow up in a place of privilege really, really miss, you know, really, um, over what we'll end up, what we end up doing is we, we spiritualize all of it. And so the gospel becomes this message of hope for the future so that the, that the gospel is all about heaven and gospel is all about, um, what's going to happen after we die and all the good promises of uh, what makes the gospel good news is good news for after we die. But the gospels themselves in the book of revelation aren't, looking that far ahead. I mean, they definitely obviously talk about that, but the prayer that Jesus prays isn't, you know, dear Jesus, dear God, get me off this planet and, and off to paradise. It's thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, you know, this goes back to the incarnational thing. You know, the, the, the early church was very concerned with the here and now, you know, and as much as they're looking off to the second coming, they're looking at the second coming as meeting them in the present, not, you know, what's going to happen after they die. They're, they're looking at how is God breaking into our reality now here in our lives in the present. But, you know, Christian, like you, you brought up Constantine, Christianity begins to change under Constantine. It, it becomes this religion of, you know, privilege because we, you know, get in bed with the empire. And then, you know, 2000 years later, most of us live pretty relative, you know, comfortable lives. And so the gospel as quote, good news for the poor doesn't really make sense to, you know, middle, that, that idea doesn't really have a lot of hold um, in practical, earthly present terms for middle-class white guy like me, but as good news for my soul, you know, okay, well, that's very attractive. And so now the doctrine of hell becomes really, you know, important because that's what really the good news hinges on is saving my soul from hell. And so what you end up with is really this over-spiritualized, radically different form of Christianity than than existed when the church began, because the church, like you said, at the beginning was was very concerned with practical realities of life, that Jesus was coming to change your life here and now, not in a prosperity gospel sense, but in a sense of this, like, again, liberation, justice, um, inclusion, all those sorts of things. Um, but we don't, a lot of us don't have that need, um, you know, in the United States and 21st America, and at least people that look and sound like me. And so we spiritualize, you know, the gospel into nothing more than a bunch of ideas that we have to agree to, to save our souls from hell. And so, you know, the gospel becomes ultimately irrelevant, you know, for the here and now when books like Revelation become a big mystery. There's also the line in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, which is something that we, in the industrialized modern West, we don't get, we don't understand that. Yeah, you know, we, we can go to the corner store and we can buy a loaf of bread if we really want to. You know, exactly. it's, everything's readily available. But, but think about, you know, if we put ourselves in the shoes of someone living in the slums of Mumbai, you know, for whom bread is, is you know, give us this daily bread is a real prayer. You know, it, it's not, yeah. not this abstract, hey, I want to get a bonus so I can take my family to Disneyland. It's, I need food for substance. Um you know, that's when we can. We, we like to talk a lot about the radicalness of the gospel and being a radical disciple of Jesus. The reality is, we're never going to be able to accomplish any of that living the kind of lives that most of us, and I'm preaching here to myself, you know, live. Um, the radicalness of the gospel, you know, um, can only be seen like when Jesus says, I mean, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. When you're completely dependent on God in that situation, that's pretty radical. But, you know, there's not really anything radical about most of Christianity, at least in the United States these days. 
What kind of pushback do you, and I want to go on here, but what kind of pushback do you get when you talk about this kind of stuff? The rapture because this, this is, I mean, it's so simple, but for so many people, it seems like it's the most revolutionary thing. And we have such a fear in this country, especially this holdover from the cold war, which I believe that's a whole other topic. The whole, uh, how Lindsay stuff gets into that. Um, and how this, that begins to be pushed in the seventies and all that. But you have such a fear, socialism, communism. When you say stuff like this, that's immediately from the conservative crowd. That's what you're going to be tarred as is this socialist or this communist. Sure. I mean, how do you react to something like that? Um, I completely lost my train of thought. Um, that I, you, know, I, <laughs> you know, I would say, you know, it, it's certainly uh, something that wouldn't be new. You know, I've, you know, been writing about that kind of stuff for a while. So I'm mean, part of it is just, you know, getting a thicker skin, but you, know, you do have to engage this stuff because, you know, a, a lot of Christians, you know, have that very spiritualized, um, you know, hyper-personal, you know, version of Christianity that they think is, you know, is orthodoxy is, 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 is the gospel. Um, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of pastors that kind of talk about this in terms of, they say that, you know, it's really hard to make disciples on Sunday morning when Fox news is making disciples of them the rest of the week, or they'll say cable news to be nice, but you know, that's what we're talking about. That's exactly what Dr. Future says. Yeah. Yeah. But like the, the reality, I think that's, I don't know that I have an answer to be honest with you. I think, I mean, I know how I handle it personally when I deal with criticism is, you know, most of it I tune out, um, unless it's, you know, people I actually know in real life. Um, and then I'm, you know, I'm eager to, you know, engage those people in real life. No, not in Facebook debates or, you know, Twitter battles, things like that. That's not really going to, you know, change the world or, or solve much of anything. Um, but I, I think that's the, the great challenge of, of the church, at least in the United States, um, today is, is how do we disciple people who are constantly be, being discipled other places um, all the time? And not, not just Fox News, right? Because, I mean, the, the reality is, like, we're so plugged in, regardless of where you fall in the political spectrum, we're all being discipled in different ways, and you know, from social media to, to, to cable news to you know, our friends and whatever the, the, the situation is, you know, how, how does the truth of the gospel or the radical nature of the gospel that we like to talk about, how does that actually break through to, to people who've been conditioned to believe something else? You know, I, I think it starts with personal relationships. You know, I, I think you have to kind of earn the right to have the conversations, some of these conversations, not all of them. Um, you know, I think there's certainly a, a need for, bold prophetic voices to stand up and call out, you know, the injustices in the church, the sanctification of bigotry in the church, the sanctification of racism in the church, um, you know, call out, you know, uh, people like me, you know, are my like white privilege and, and how blind I can be to that kind of thing. Um, you know, and so it, 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 there's no, there's no silver bullet answer, you know, there, there's no silver bullet cure that's going to, turn the church around and everybody's going to figure it out. You know, we're all going to always disagree, but you know, I, I, I don't know the answer, but I do know that that is, I think the biggest challenge 
know, the church is not like dealing with evolution or atheism or, or, you know, whatever it's, it's how do we go about making real authentic disciples, you know, in a world where people are being discipled by, you know, everything and everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, case in point, um, you know, our last show next to last show of this year of last year was Dr. Future, who you've met. And he took some very similar lines to what you're talking about. He talked about how, you know, looking, let's go back to the words of Jesus, the, the red letter idea, you know, let's go back to those words. Let's see what's in there. And I have him on, I get this email from this guy and he just basically calls Dr. Future, like calls him Hitler and goes off on a rant about Hillary Clinton. When we only mentioned that one time and not in a very good light, but it's almost like there's a cognitive dissonance with people yeah, where they can't see past. It's like nothing. He didn't address anything that Dr. Future actually said. Yeah. And Dr. Future gets this a lot on his blog, too. You know, he get people that, you know, he'll write about how, you know, we need to get back to the gospel and leave all this stuff behind, you know. And, and, and But you'll get these more conservative people that will just start talking about, like, well, you know, Hillary was going to destroy this country. Like, we're not even talking about that. So it's just like, it. it, it it's almost just, I, I think where you... You you have a section in the book where you break all this down, like the first naivete and how some people just don't get past that. Yeah, and and like I said, it's it's cognitive dissonance, and yeah. I, I just I don't understand. It's almost like I understand it, but I don't. Yeah, you know. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I, mean, I think it's a couple of things. You know, it's to kind of go back to where we we're just talking about with the discipleship stuff, you know, there's people have been conditioned to react to certain buzzwords, you know, um, you know, and so they've been told that you know, socialism or social justice, you know, or social justice warriors or, you know, whatever the, the key word is, the Fox news is, is, um, ranting about that particular day. I mean, there's all these buzzwords that if you even mention them, people tune out the rest of what you have to say because they think they already know what you're talking about or what your conclusions are you know, are going to be. Um, and then the other problem is that it, it, you know, to borrow a very cliche example, but it's, it's a lot like the matrix, you know, um, there's that scene where, uh, is it Joe Piscopo, the bald guy with the mustache? Anyway, he's sitting there with agent, one of the agents and, you know, is eating steak and talking about wanting to be plugged back into the matrix, you know? And I think, you know, obviously all of us, you go through the first naivete where we're, naive about the world or about how things work, but you know, we may not move out of that, but I mean, we definitely are pushed out of it at one point or another. And the question is whether or not we want to keep pushing on or we want to go back. And you know, the reality is it's painful and it's hard to keep going. You know, it, it means admitting that we're wrong. It may even mean the end of certain relationships and friendships because they were toxic or detrimental or, or, or whatever. Um, you know, and, and that's a very painful, tough experience. And a lot of people don't want to go through that, you know, don't want to, um, you know, deal with the, you know, consequences that the new ideas 
you know, will lead to. And so they want to be plugged back in the matrix, so to speak, you know, go back to the naive day. And, you know, I get that, you know, the world is, is a big and, you know, scary place. And, um, a lot, I, you know, I've gone through that, that process and it is painful, you know, it does change relationships and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, I, I get that. I think it's, we tend to choose the easier path. I mean, it's like Jesus said, you know, the way is, is narrow, uh, or the way is wide. And there are many, uh, that find it. It's like Jesus said, and we, we prefer the easy path, you know, and, um, people take it cause it's easy and it's comfortable and it's known. And there's a lot more people, you know, on that path. And a lot of those people are friends and, you know, and our family and, you know, the prospect of going it you know, alone or going it with other people, um, that look and sound and act differently and talk and eat and think differently than we is, is sometimes just too scary. Um, a prospect. Yeah. Well, it's like Mike, um, talks about, you know, helping the poor and, you know, living by the words of Jesus, and he gets called Adolf Hitler. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's, no, I've been there, done that. This uh, one of the uh, parts I found pretty compelling in the book was, you, and that helped to also change your viewpoint was this uh, experience that you had in Nicaragua. Yeah, and to kind of help change, propel your thinking along. Yeah that that wasn't a. Um, Another like it was one of those moments that was more transformative in retrospect, I think, you know, than it was like the story that you're referring to. You know, for those who haven't heard, is yeah, I was in Nicaragua on a mission trip, and we were feeding kids, you know, VBS, and uh, they would come and they would get their meals, and they were supposed to sit down with you know our church group that was there, and um, then we noticed that you know, every once in a while, one one or two kids would um, grab their meals and take off, and you know, being the arrogant kind of naive, uh, 20 something year old that I was at the time, I, I thought they were just, I don't know what I thought they were doing. I guess I thought they were like running around the corner and collecting meals to laugh at the, you know, the gringos that they pulled one over on. So anyway, me and the other youth worker decided to, to follow one of them and then, you know, kind of bust them on their, uh, obviously epic crime spree or whatever we thought they were doing. And, <laughs> and so, um, when one of them left, uh, we, we follow them and go around this corner and see them dart in the house and we see hands come out and grab the food. And we thought, you know, oh, well, we finally, you know, caught the, the, the hooligans, you know, in the act and we're going to go in there and I don't know, make them give back the food or something. Anyway, so we finally make it down this house and we look in, you know, the dark room, we look in this dark room and the person he was handing the food to was his mother and she was giving it to his baby sister um, because it was the only meal that they were going to get um, that day. And, you know, that was a, a huge uh, privilege check, you know, for me um, uh, of how good I had it, how naive I was about the real world. Um, but then in retrospect too, about what the, you know, the gospel was really all about and, and what it really meant, like we were saying before, for it to be good news to the poor. Um, you know, and so it, it kind of opened my eyes to the fact that if the gospel is good news to the poor, then those people understand the gospel and, and eventually revelation as well, far better than, than I ever could. Even if, you know, I have a bunch of theology degrees from fancy schools and, and they don't, yeah. um, because it, because it was written to, to them and, and not to me. So, This may seem like a dumb question, but have you have you completely left the dispensationalism behind? And 
if so, what do you kind of consider yourself now? Oh yeah, on the spectrum I, of uh, Christian eschatological, can't even say it, eschatological <laughs> belief. Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I I don't have any faith in in dispensationalism and, and totally reject all of it. Um, wow. But um, not all of eschatology, which, like I said, I mean, to be two different things. Um, you know, I certainly affirm the orthodox, you know, confession faith that you know Jesus will return and and make all things new. I just don't think the revelation, you know, is a timetable for how that will happen. I don't think there's a rapture that will zap us away before it happens. I think a rapture. I think revelation is a is a way of thinking. It's, it's a way. It's, if it's a guide, it's a guide to how we should go about living in the present, about how we should go about doing the work of undermining the empire and the beast, about how we should go about the work of, you know, reconciling the world back to its creator, of caring for creation, of caring for the poor, of, you know, welcoming the marginalized and liberating the oppressed. Um, and so if, if anything, you know, I see the book of Revelation not as you know, a roadmap to the future or an escape, get out of jail free card, but as a, as a calling, um, to do, to, to bring the kingdom of God here on earth now, um, and not just sit around waiting for Jesus to magically do something in the future. So I absolutely affirm the Orthodox, you know, Orthodoxy of Jesus's return. Um, I just believe that it's a, a, his return is something that we profess, um, with our lives now and not just with, um, ideas and charts um, about the future. And just to be clear, you're not advocating some like the, uh, the, the kingdom now theology or the seven, the seven mountains stuff. Yes. Yeah, so, no, right. I, I don't believe like in like the secret yeah. rapture or that, you know, the revelation has you know already been fulfilled and that somehow there's this secret kingdom of God somewhere. You know, I think um, that it's a, here but not yet kind of thing which is a kind of a cliche term in theological circles but that like my professor said that the kingdom of god began to dawn the moment jesus walked out of the tomb because the moment he walked out of the tomb the world began to be start being made new and that that process is completed upon his return you know and in the middle um you know it's our our job to be the hands and feet of Jesus, you know, as cliche as that sounds, but to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, bringing that, doing the kingdom of work, um, here as it begins to dawn, um, in history and, and it eventually is completed when he returns. I, I really wanted to ask you this, like just out of curiosity, what's your thought on the preterist argument? You're going to have to jog my memory. I know what you're talking about, but I can't. Uh, the preterist is the one that say most of everything already happened in like 70 AD. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, um, I mean, there's definitely validity to that, um, but I don't think it's an either or thing um, yeah. because you know, I think you're – you. I think the, the folly there is that you end up in a the same sort of literalist trap that dispensationalism does. In the sense of that, you're you're forcing the myth, the mythology, or the apocalyptic literature genre into um, a different genre of literature. So you're forcing apocalyptic literature to be um, be you know, literal history, and you know there's certainly elements of that. You know, I mean, Pete, uh, John certainly has the Roman Empire in mind when he's talking about Babylon. You know, he certainly has you know the emperor in mind when he's talking about the beast and things sure. like that. 
um, because the revelation opens up with you know letters to seven real churches. So there's definitely you know historicity you know uh, undergirding the book and events that you know certainly happened or um, played out in some way. But again, you know that that is to like the dispensationalists you know miss the deeper truths of revelation by forcing it into uh, you know literal history in a particular way. And see, we haven't even talked about some of the other aspects of the whole um, rapture theology, uh, especially the pre-tribulation stuff. Like, there's a lot that goes into that, um, politically especially. Like, we we have a lot of people that base their political beliefs and a lot of political policy that's being made based on those beliefs. And yeah, that, to me, is the most frightening aspect of it. Absolutely. And that's one of the big things that I try to convey in the book is that, you know, it doesn't really matter um, whether or not you or I believe, you know, in the rapture, in times, or whatever we think the timing is, you know, because a lot of people do, and a lot of people with political power um, right. believe and, and are influencing. So, for example, you know, Donald Trump moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to, uh, you know, Jerusalem is a direct response um, to his evangelical base who believes that such a move is part of this prophetic unfolding, you know, in the Middle East that has to happen in order for Jesus to come back. Well, because because of that movement, because of that move of the embassy, because of the influence of those, you know, his evangelical advisors, 60 people died, you know, in rioting. Um, you know, go back towards the Bush administration, Jack Van Impey claims that, you know, they, you know, counseled him or looked for his advice as they were, you know, going into Iraq and doing those sorts of things. So, like, you know, these... As crazy and irrelevant as these ideas may seem, um, they they are deeply held beliefs held by a, a lot of people who have you know direct influence on politicians um, and their international policies. And so, like, there are really life and death stakes, whether it's you know the people who die in the rioting or climate change and how we address that. Um, because you know, if you believe that Jesus is going to come burn up the earth and start all over again, you know, who cares if we burn it up first? Because Jesus is going to fix it anyway. Right. Right. And so, so all these ideas have very real implications on public policy, um, regardless of if you believe it or not. And so it, it's a subject that, that really needs and deserves a lot more attention, particularly given the current um, you know, occupant in the White House. Well, I was told by Jim Baker that since he is there, the rapture isn't going to happen. We got to stay on it. Since Did you get to talk to him? Since Hillary since Hillary No, no, I didn't actually Oh, I was just, gonna say, like, just like I heard that he said that, you know, um, yeah, he actually said that, that that's funny. But because Trump was elected and Hillary wasn't, um, the rapture was delayed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> convenient, um, that, you know, the lap, the rapture gets delayed so that a lot of people can sell, you know, more buckets of food like Jim <laughs> or how can sell his eighth you know, version of well, like great Planet earth or, Good news, yeah. they're selling buckets of food at Walmart now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> no, that's seriously, you can get the big survival buckets, you don't have to get them from the <laughs> can, can you get the, the cheese? And, can you get the cheese and broccoli? Do they have the cheese and broccoli? They have all the flavors, Adam. Awesome. Well, that's and that's the thing that like a lot of people like, this is a multi million dollar racket, you know, there's a lot of money that's made off yeah, of, yeah. Of, of, of folks. So, you know, if you uh looking to quit your day job, become an apocalyptic prophet, and uh. You'll have a main shade. Yeah, I've been thinking about it. I mean, why not? 
you know? Why not? Exactly. I mean, come on. Come on, Zach. Just repudiate this book and let's go into business together. <laughs> I was wrong. I need some I need some theological underpinning. Uh, <laughs> you can you can help me out. I'll make some buckets of barbecue and we can freeze dry it. <laughs> if, if you can find a way to make ribs last in a bucket for decades, Ooh. I'm there. I, I could I could be convinced to renounce my uh, beliefs uh, or renounce my renounced beliefs if I could freeze dry ribs. Yum. <laughs> Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> you know, and when, and when the bucket's empty, you know what you could use it for. Because what do you do with the doo doo? Well, it comes in one end and you know goes right back in. Right, right. You got the empty <laughs> buckets. <laughs> Want a bucket of ribs and mac and cheese? Well, that's, yeah. Now I'm having bad images. Making me hungry, man. <laughs> I'm starving. <laughs> I'm <getting> hungry over here. <laughs> All right, Zach. Thank you so much, man. Where can people get the book? Which... Great question. So you know, honestly, wherever they buy books, uh, at least online. Uh, you know, I, th- I think it'll be available in stores at like Barnes and Noble and books a million. Uh, but it's available, you know, Amazon online, Barnes and Noble books, a million target, uh, Herald press, which is my publisher. You can get it from there. Christian booksellers, uh, CBD.com. Uh, I think that's what it's called. And, um, yeah, I mean really any major book publisher online, you can find it pretty easily. And it's actually on sale right now. If you pre-order it on Amazon, uh, they've knocked like $4 off the price. Oh, nice. Very nice. Well, thank you, Zach, for coming back on, man. It's been great. And it's also awesome to have you in our local area, too. I think that's really, really cool as well that you're here. Thank and, you for uh, having me. That's an honor. And, and I, I really enjoy it. And I really appreciate you guys having me. Absolutely. Stay on the line for us, sir. We're going to close this section out. And we'll be back to uh, close out the show on Conspiracy Normal. Okay. Well, I know that those are your favorite, right? I understood all of it. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Those are your favorite. You like the religious ones. I you do. told me, like, you know, in fact, and you, you actually looked at me and you said, oh, man, we're doing a religious show. I want to do the recording on that one. Yes. Uh, if, we could, uh, if we could get political next week, I'd be really happy. Okay. So those are my well, two favorite you know, things right, to talk right, about. Yeah, we can get political. Um you know, uh, we we may get a little political. I don't know. I, I don't how how political is J. Allen Hynek because that'll be what we're talking about. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, uh, might, that could be a little political. <laughs> I'm not sure. And I, I don't I don't dislike religion or politics. I just don't understand it enough to feel like I can talk about anything. <laughs> if that makes sense. Like I don't have opinions or ideas. You know, I just sit back and just kind of try to digest it. I think with the guests that we have on, and you know where I lean as a Christian, you know, we've talked about it many times. We've had extensive discussions about it. Um, I think with our guests, I think that it's much easier to digest. Oh, for sure, that, like that kind yeah. of stuff. You know, if I mean, we if we had on somebody that was just this, and we've we've had those people on that are real strict like prophecy, <laughs> like this is what's going to happen, and this is this is how it's going to be. You know, that it's just a bunch of terms get thrown out, and there are some. I mean, that's why I wanted him to explain, you know, rapture dispensationalism, what that means, because you know there are some people that don't fully understand those concepts. You know, like dispensate, like I understand the rapture thing. Dispensationalism, I have to just like I, I don't even know, man, and and it, and it's confusing because 
you know, some people say there's seven dispensations. Some people say there's three. Some people say there's five. It's like, well, you know, and I can, it, I can, it, it depends on which group came up with it at which time. And I, I can appreciate all of it from like a, a philosophical sort of a standpoint, you know, yeah. more than um, it's just people get so heated about their beliefs. It's such a dangerous, touchy subject, right? You know, and it's 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 doubly dangerous when you you end up like. Um, Involving agendas and money and capitalism and all these other things because it, it's as it's, we've explored. Yep, it's such an easy way to to get people on your side to to back you for anything. You know, if if I say, um, you know, I'm a good Christian and all good Christians need to start uh, subscribing to my cable company or whatever, like you're gonna get instantly you're going to get a bunch of people on board and it's like it's it gets used that way a lot and i think that's horrible you know using people's it's kind of using people's insecurities to to mm-hmm. direct and guide them in a lot of ways and it just it, it makes me sick the whole thing so I, I i tend to just tune out of a lot of it yeah yeah and i don't blame you doing that for politics either uh you know um Seraphiel and i had lunch today and we were talking about how you know we're trying to we want to try to do the romper room things a little bit more and uh, kind of came up with an idea for for doing those, which I'll get to in a little bit. But we were talking about that, and it's just like we we're so kind of tuned out of politics. And he said, you know, I just need to, to to look into it more. And I said, yeah, me too, because frankly, there's so much going on that every day that you can't possibly cover all of it, and and there you is. get you get and tired. There, is. yeah, absolutely. Worn out and I, I, th- I think I think that's. I mean, I think that's part of the agenda is to wear people into a state of apathy. Yeah. Um, because if you get enough apathetic people out there, then you you know you're you're only going to get the nut jobs out there voting, and they're easier to control. I think in some ways. Right. Right. I wanted to ask you a question because uh, you grew up Lutheran. Was there any emphasis on any of this stuff in the Lutheran Church? You remember hearing much about it? No, there was a lot of um, a lot of real open discussions on gospel. There was a lot of potlucks, a lot of coffee hours. Yeah, coffee, uh, food, food is a big part of it. Getting together, eating food. Um, but no, not, I mean, it's very non, very non preachy. Yeah. Um, way to go about everything. And most churches are, and we've talked about this before, how there's like this very, very vocal minority. Most people don't yeah. believe a lot of this stuff in their right. churches, you know. So I wanted to turn to another subject that is um, maybe slightly related, because I have a theory about it. I don't know if anybody has seen, you haven't seen it, this documentary. It's about four hours long. People already know probably what I'm talking about. Leaving Neverland. Not seen it, heard about it. Um, Which is about Michael Jackson and these two guys that are now claiming that they were molested by him. Are those two guys making a profit off of this? 
I don't know. That's always the first thing I look at. Yeah. Okay. So one of the so you got what was, was the guy's name? One is his name is Wade Robson. I think the other guy's name is it's a real weird name like James Surf Chuck or something like that. Uh. Now, for me, and I'll be flat out in saying it, this did not change my opinion of Michael Jackson um, in this respect. I think the guy was a pedophile. Sorry. I think he was. Um, You know, it was always weird in the 90s, and I was never a big Michael Jackson fan. You know, maybe when I was like when Thriller was around or something like that when I was like seven. But uh, it was always weird in the '90s to see this grown man with like little kids. Even when I was a teenager, to see that, like you know, what is he doing hanging out with little kids? And you heard about stuff like in the '90s, like 1993, he had all these accusations that he settled out of court, right? And the big one, though, was in 2005 when he got a, when he was arrested. And that was because he did this documentary that was like an hour long that VH1 played its MTV. Several different places played it at the time called is like Inside the World of Michael Jackson or something. The journalist's name was Martin Bashir, British journalist. And he interviews Jackson. And of course, you know, Michael Jackson is, you know, he's already turning into an alien at that point and looking really weird. And he's sitting there on this couch and he's got this little kid right next to him. And I think it was the same little kid that they, that, that supposedly had cancer that had this make a wish foundation that they, uh, he his wish was to meet Michael Jackson, and apparently Michael Jackson did something to him, and the parents sued, and this was well, it happened. Well, two years before that happened, you had this documentary, and he's sitting there admitting on camera that he, you know, sleeps in the same bed as these kids, you know, and it was just effing disturbing, okay. And from that point on, I was like, this dude is a pedophile. He likes I little mean, kids. You know, people were, were were saying like, you know, like if he's sleeping with little kids, he's doing shit with little kids. All right. It's just like, you know, and people were apologizing for him and coming up with all this stuff. Now, in the trial, this is how we're getting back to this, to the Leaving Neverland documentary. In the trial... Wade Robeson was one of these guys that's in this in this documentary. And he met Michael in Australia. And when he was like five, six years old, his friend his parents become friends with Michael Jackson. Uh he pretty much essentially separates the family by bringing the mother and the sister and Wade to the United States to further his career, where he promptly proceeds to ignore him after having taken him to Neverland, 
where Wade describes what sexual abuse he did to him. And he separates the, the father stays in Australia. The father later kills himself as well as this other guy in the movie. I think Servcheck or whatever his name is. His father ended up killing himself too, which they actually don't talk about in the documentary, but he did. So both of these guys' dads have killed themselves. And what Jackson would do is he would basically separate he would basically separate the children from their parents. So the mother, Wade Robson's mother says, "Well, he took he would uh they would have the hotel room. Wade would stay with Michael Jackson. And I'd have the hotel room right next door." And as time goes on on the tour, all of a sudden the hotel room's down the hall. Then all of a sudden the hotel, her hotel room is is downstairs. And she's like thinking the whole time that nothing is going on, right? So he's separating these kids slowly from their families. Okay? Same thing happens with the other dude. Same exact process. She's on the phone with Michael Jackson seven hours a day at one point talking to this dude. This is Wade Robeson's mother. I think the same thing happens with the other kid's mother. So the same process is going on constantly. This is the kind of stuff that a cult leader does. This is the kind of shit that David Koresh did, that Jim Jones did, guys like Tony Alamo. Well, if this this is the kind of the same kind of mater- the same kind of tactics that they use to brainwash people. Now, Wade Robeson testified for Michael Jackson in the 2005 trial saying there was no sexual abuse. And who else testified was Macaulay Culkin. Right. Macaulay Culkin maintains that there was no sexual abuse. Wade Robeson now has come out and said there was, but at the time he didn't see it as sexual abuse. And in 2005, Michael Jackson gets him to testify by telling him that if he goes down, meaning Michael, then you, meaning Wade, are going to go down with me. That's also the same kind of tactics and shit a cult leader does as well. If you understand it through that prism of Michael Jackson being some kind of cult leader and using those same tactics of mind control, then everything makes perfect sense. Well, yeah, I mean, it's tactics used by a cult leader. You can't really call him a cult leader. You don't have a cult, but... But the fans are kind of acting the same way, right? Because they're still defending him, right, even not, to this day. I'm, I'm even not. after, even after the, even after the two that happened, one in 2005, the other one happened in 1993, and now these two guys have come forward, and they're still using, they're still getting on the internet saying, "How dare you do this?" Michael Jackson would never have done this. Yeah, he liked to sleep in the bed with little boys, but it was all innocent. But I guarantee you, if someone in this neighborhood here 
that we're in was an adult man sleeping with somebody else's kids and little boys, that person will be arrested and on the sex offender list in no time. Michael Jackson had good lawyers. And and there's another element to this, too. And I want to tread lightly on what I say here. <laughs> okay? But it, it it's a good point. Are we believing these guys? Are we are they disbelieving these guys and coming out and defending Michael Jackson? Because I guarantee you, if this were these were women, this would be a totally different ball game. And I'm not saying women lie. What I'm saying is this perception that these guys are men and they're supposed to be handling their shit is leading people to say that they must be liars. Bill Cosby was taken down by several women, but because these are men that were sexually abused, boys that were sexually abused, that's somehow different. It's not. I've It's sexual abuse of children, especially. Right. See, I've never seen that side. I've never, I mean, I don't, I guess I don't know if I never thought about it that way or just never encountered any arguments that led me to believe that that kind yeah. of an attitude is going on. Because you do have but, the whole Kevin Spacey thing. Right. Right. But Kevin Spacey is a well-known actor, but he's not this mythic character like Michael Jackson. Well, and it's also something that was currently going on, not something that happened back in the day that can't be rectified. Right. Um, which I think also kind of puts, gives people a different attitude towards the situation. You know, you it's, if it was something that was currently going on that I think needed to be looked into, I would be much more on the, um, let's figure this shit out, like, now, kind of a thing. And, if this did happen to them, obviously I feel bad for them, you know, but I mean, I don't know. Other than testimony, we don't really have anything else to go on at this point. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, he said, and then he's dead argument. Yeah. Right? And anything, we're, 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 we're not, we're not going to know. And anything that's that speculative gets right. kind of dangerous. Right. You know? So, but, you could okay. There's been Wade Robeson, apparently uh, the the other guy. The not many people are talking about him now. He went on to become this big um, choreographer for guy, people like Britney Spears and Sync, all the late '90s garbage. And so you know, but but he became a big deal and a fairly big deal in the in that industry. And uh, uh. I think partly because of Michael Jackson helping him in some ways with his career. Now, um, there's been a lot of accused that his career has not gone the way that it should have, that he was mad at Michael because one of the, like the big history tour that Michael Jackson was going to do that he was supposed to do that, but Michael chose somebody else. So he's bitter about it. Uh, there was, this is a post that was put on the post put, put on Facebook and they were talking about how he cheated on this girl. He cheated on Michael's niece. He cheated on this girl, that girl, these other people. He's, you know, 
not realizing that that kind of promiscuity like that is also indicative of someone that has been sexually abused. True. So that almost in itself proves something happened. It doesn't prove it, but it lends more. And then you got to think about Jackson himself. And there's all these rumors that he was abused. Well, and yeah, that doesn't excuse it. No, but that was a possibility. And, and he definitely had a very messed up childhood and messed up life. And obviously had some psychological issues. I don't know. For me, I guess where I stand is that, yes, it's very bizarre. Um, Yes, it's a possibility, but it's also a possibility that he was just had no idea what it means to be an adult or a child and had been, you know, a celebrity since he was little and his ideas of boundaries were just blurred and messed up. And then he also had crazy amounts of money. It's easy to kind of go after. And he, right. But at the same time, because he had a crazy amount of money, he was able to blunt these things. Now, the you know, he settled out of court on the first charge in 1993. Right. He settled that out of court. Okay. So that's suspicious in and of itself. But he had a lot of money that he could that he could hire the best lawyers. I mean, Johnny Cochran was his lawyer in 1993. For well, God's it, sakes. it's you it's know, not, but it's I don't know that it is that suspicious. I, and I'm not defending him. I'm not like <clears throat> I, I don't even care for his music to be honest. But I'm you know I mean if you're a celebrity and you want to continue to be a celebrity, it's much easier to just pay money to make things go away than it is to go to court over anything. Yeah. You know, that's the last thing that you're going to want. You know, you can get, you can buy, you can get the best lawyer's money can buy. Robert Durst, the guy that, you know, they say killed his wife, um, that they made the, uh, I can't remember that documentary series with the jinx about him, that he had all these people die around him. I mean, he clearly killed this dude that he was living with in Galveston, Texas, chopped him up. Threw him in the in the bay, and was a, and, and was it was able to get off on a self defense charge. His family had mega bucks. <laughs> Clearly, did it. <laughs> he, he came at me with his angry look in his eye. I had to chop him up and throw him in the river. I'll read this from. Uh, yeah, and, and and somehow the head was gone too. Like they never found the dude's head. Sounds like self defense to me. Sounds like self defense, right? Yeah. <laughs> we'll overkill maybe, but so this is interesting about. Uh, well, I'll just read this. This is from Wikipedia. As of 2019, five boys who shared a bed with Jackson, Jordan Chandler, Gavin Arvizo, Jason Francia, Wade Robeson, and James Safechuck have alleged that he sexually abused them. Three, Macaulay Culkin, Corey Feldman, and Brett Barnes said they witnessed no abuse. And this came out. Or this came out in response to never uh, leaving Neverland. Feldman later said he could no longer defend Jackson. That's big because Corey Feldman was is was one of Michael Jackson's 
biggest supporters for a long time. That's huge. So this could, I mean, we're in the age of me too. This kind of stuff is coming out and that people in the nineties, we must've been so innocent or naive that this dude, I mean, they show footage in this documentary and yes, I know documentaries can be, you can, you can propagandize. I get it. I know. Okay. I can just hear somebody typing angrily, <laughs> but, but, you but, send the, all but your they're to conspiranormal.com right. or at gmail. Conspiranormal. What? Yeah. Just send it to <laughs> Sergio. <laughs> the, the, uh, uh, or Luke, send it to Luke. The, just this footage of him and he's constantly have, he constantly has little boys with him, man. And it's like in public doesn't care flagrant about it. You know, he's not rubbing on him and shit, kissing him, but like nobody says anything like, Oh, he's just a child. He has the mind. Yeah. Out in the open, bro. I mean, oh, uh, yeah, it's it's a hard documentary to watch. I, I I I had to definitely split it into two nights. Yeah, because that first part of it, and one point, one other point about it is that when I watched the first part, and they were talking about Macaulay Culkin, uh, said that nothing ever happened, you know. Which is surprising if you look at Macaulay Culkin. I mean, dude. He needs. Yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, but. And then uh, these two guys were saying that they did get abused. And if you look at them, the two kids, as they were kids, and they are now as adults, they look a little bit alike. They're similar. Okay, so I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe what it was was Michael Jackson. He had a type that he liked. He liked little boys, but he liked one type sexually. That's not unusual for anybody to have a type of someone they like sexually. Okay, everybody has that. It's just for Michael Jackson, it was little kids. And so I'm like, okay, that must have been what it is. I mean, he didn't he abused them, but he didn't abuse Macaulay Culkin. Well, second part of the documentary, I watched that. And I'm thinking, no, what it is, is he's playing the same kind of mind games. It's just that those are the true believers. They still believe it. That's the cult aspect that I'm talking about. Uh, Yeah. So you think they all were abused? Yeah. And that's why there isn't like... Wade Robeson makes a point. He says that for him, in his mind... Because he was so messed up, he didn't see what happened as abuse. So when they asked him as a child, and then as an adult when he testified, they said, were you abused? No. Because he didn't see it that way. Right. He saw it that Michael loved him. That's brainwashing. Anyway, that's my soapbox. <laughs> it's Neverland. It. It's all it's all just, you know, it's <laughs> really what did he what was the words that he said to Martin Bashir? It's just really endearing. 
It's just really, it's wonderful and pleasant. Stop talking like that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's what I felt when I watched that documentary. I'm like, dude, you are sick, man. You know, I mean, yeah, disgusting. All right. I'm sure I'll get some Michael Jackson fans out there emailing, putting stuff on the YouTubes. How dare you say that about Michael Jackson, you, sir? Yeah. All right, well that's it, guys. Um, next week we've got we're back here again, two weeks in a row. I can't believe it. Mark O'Connell, this is going to be a re-record because Sergio and I lost the show that we did. Oh, it's that one. I better be on my hut. <laughs> yeah, you better be on the ones and twos. I better be around. sober. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to have him talk about J. Allen Hynek, and we've got some. I've got guests lined up all the way through the middle of April, so I'm really excited about it, and expect to see some changes, um, some things happening to the format of the show as well. Uh, we got a lot of interesting things, and I wanted to do. I did want to say that we are what we are going to start doing. Uh, Sergio and I are going to start doing this. I mean, Rob, obviously, you can do it if you want. Uh, romper room episodes. I want to try to do at least one a month. Now, every other romper room episode is only going to be available through Patreon. So, if you want to hear those shows, you need to go to Patreon. Lots of ranting and raving. Tell them how they can get to Patreon, Rob. You can go to www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal. There's all kinds of tiers to sign up for. Uh, We actually still have some t-shirts from the first batch. There's uh, conspiranormal wallpapers up there. Lots of bonus episodes. uh, Lots of great behind-the-scenes stuff. Extras. We get guests to hang out afterwards and chat with us about some... You know, a little more obscure topics, and we're a little more free with what we talk about and how we talk, and it's it's a fun way to contribute if you want to help the show um, and you want a little bit of bonus content. If you don't want to subscribe to anything, you can do a one-time donation at our website at conspiranormal.com. And if you want to help the show but you don't want to spend money doing it, just tell your friends, give us a five-star review, uh, iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen, or just email us. Uh, we love hearing from everybody. Lots of ways to help. Absolutely, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, We will be back next time on Conspiranormal Thriller.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.